0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor of Physics at the University of Sheffield, Richard Jones, looks at how we can manipulate matter at the level of individual atoms and molecules and the possible impact this will have on advances in medicine, energy and information technology. Good. Well, thank you very much, and it's a, a great pleasure to be here to, to talk about uh, s- some aspects of nanotechnology. Uh, a, a more topical subject than I thought it would be when I, for this particular day when I agreed to come and give this talk, but there we are. What I want to talk about uh, are some, uh, the ideas that people have about nanotechnology and why I think some of these ideas are misguided, why I think other ideas are, are less misguided, and I suppose the common theme really is it's all about uh, what we can learn from biology, so I want to start by uh, showing an image that to many people is an iconic image of this subject called nanotechnology. so this image was uh, created by Don Eigler, a scientist working in IBM in, uh, in one thousand nine hundred and ninety and it looks like a rather crude uh, uh, representation of the logo of the company he worked for. But what's special about this image is that uh, each of the dots on that, that, that picture, each of those dots with which those letters are picked out, is actually an atom. Each of those dots is a, a, a single xenon atom. And what this picture shows is not only that we can image individual atoms, so this is uh, the result of a, a, a new type of microscopy invented also in IBM in the, in the mid-'80s called scanning tunneling mi- microscopy. So this new technique allows one to image individual atoms... But of course, what this picture shows is not only could Don Eigler image individual atoms, he could move them around. He could pick up individual atoms and move them around at will to, and in this case, to make this the, the world's smallest advertisement. And so this really is, as I say, it's an iconic image because it gives us this tantalizing glimpse of a world in which we can control every single atom, and we can, you know move atoms around at will. And really, what this talk is about is what what we should take from that. The question you could ask from that is, okay, so what? What what could we do with this? This is a beautiful uh, trick in a laboratory. But what does this really mean for the way that technology is going to evolve? So when we talk about nanotechnology, I want to just mention two individuals. Oh, no, I don't. I want to say how big the nanoscale is. Uh, we, We talk about nanotechnology. Uh, nanotechnology gets its name because it, it, it's named after a unit of length. It's named after the, the, the nanometer. And the, uh, many people, you know, one often reads things saying, you know, nanotechnology is about the t- technology at the nanoscale, things measured in nanometers. It's unimaginably small. Well, it is very small, but I-, I guess I'd like to say it's not really unimaginably small. And the way I'd like to think about it is as follows. If you think about, you know, what do you do in everyday life, what, in the sorts of things you do with your hands? what's the kind of range of uh, length scales, if you like, that you interact with? You know, the biggest thing that I can hold might be a metre in size. The smallest thing I can manipulate, I can just about thread a needle, so, you know, I can just about work with things on the millimetre scale. So, if you like, there's a scale, a factor of a thousand there, from the smallest thing I can hold to the biggest thing I can hold, which, if you like, describes the human world, you know, the macroscale world. Now, on this scale of lengths, we've got this pet flea which is uh, uh, one millimetre. I I stole this this diagram from the Royal Society's report on nanotechnology, and uh, people in the Royal Society have pet fleas, so there's a pet flea at one millimetre. We can think of another range of length scales. If we go a factor of a thousand smaller than one millimetre, we go down through the human hair. Human hairs are perhaps 100 microns, down to red blood cells, which are perhaps seven microns in size, uh, down to a micron. And this is another uh, factor of 1,000. So from one millimetre being the, the, the biggest end of this, th- this range that's defined by a factor of 1,000, thousand, one can go down to a micron or so, or a bit smaller. And this, if you like, is the micro scale. This is the sort of scale that you can see down a light microscope. Uh, uh, and so this is a, 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 another range of lengths in which we have technologies we have micro technologies uh, until uh, not that long ago electronics operated on this length scale you had uh, components of uh, electronic components were made in microns you know quite a lot of precision medical work is is carried out on this length scale so this if you like is the micro scale now, where we get to the nanoscale is if we go down another factor of a 1,000 from there. So if, if, we, if, if we go down, a 1,000th of a micron is a nanometer, and uh, a nanometer gets to be uh, around the size of molecules themselves. So you can see I've got a picture right down at the bottom right-hand corner of DNA, the molecule that uh, encodes our genetic information, and that's about a couple of nanometers thick. So uh, at the bottom end of this nanometer scale, we're now uh, talking about things that are defined by the size of Atoms and, and, and molecules. Again, the logo of IBM. Each of those letters is about five nanometers. So when you build things up for in, from individual atoms and molecules, you're in this new nanometer scale. And this really is what we're talking about. Nanotechnology is engineering on this very, very small scale. That's smaller than you can see in a light through a light microscope. Uh, and when we talk about who started it. Uh, two there 's two names that I want to mention, one of which is uh, quite uncontroversial, and one of which is not. Many people uh, date the introduction of the idea of nanotechnology to a lecture by richard Feynman Richard Feynman. Iconic American theoretical physicist, and in 1959 he wrote a lecture called "Plenty of Room at the Bottom," which was really a kind of speculative exploration about what you could do, the sorts of things that you could do if you could operate on this nanometer length scale. And he talked about, you know, incredibly high information densities, and we've realised that to some extent with with hard drives. He talked about new optical and electrical properties. He talked about making tiny machines. So looking back retrospectively, many people uh, regard this as being, if you like, uh, the, the foundation of the field. Though it has to be said, you know, an accurate picture of history would tell us that this is, you know, that this is really a retrospective view. At the time, the le- this was perhaps before its time, and actually very few people really referred to this, this lecture really for some time. A much more controversial figure was uh, this man here, Eric Drexler, Eric Drexler wrote a book in 1986 called Engines of Creation, which really kind of popularised the field of nanotechnology as something very exciting and very futuristic. So Drexler wasn't a, 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 a practising scientist as such, he was a, uh, you know, he's essentially a futurist, he came out of uh, being very keen on space travel, he, 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 did it, he worked in MIT in the media lab. And... Uh, the, Drexler as a figure has been tremendously polarising. There's no doubt that he's been very influential. His vision of nanotechnology has been very influential in popular culture. And when one reads about nanotechnology in science fiction books or in films or in video games, really the vision comes from Drexler. But he's also deeply unpopular amongst scientists who, who, who regard him as being uh, very um, uh, you know, well, as producing a vision that's quite unrealistic. In a sense, what I want to do today, a little bit, is actually discuss a little bit the the of vision and ask the question you know, if, if scientists think that it is wrong, and many that really is the settled consensus, why do we think that? And what is the alternative, if you see what I mean? This really was Drexler's way of thinking, just to summarise his view. He said, OK, if we can move atoms around one by one, we can make machines. We can make atomic precision machines. And so many of these works are illustrated by pictures like this, which are computer simulations of complicated machines. And then he said, OK, if I can make a machine, I can make a factory and I can make this kind of assembly line. And you have this very sort of Fordian picture of little nanoscale factories putting together atoms uh, according to some plan. And then, of course, this is where the power of the idea comes from, because we know everything's made out of atoms and molecules, so if you can, uh, if you can reconstitute everything according to their atomic plan, then, you know, in principle, you can make anything. And from this... he he deduced huge uh, uh, consequences and he said, well... You know we'll be able to. You know that shortages will end because we'll be able to make goods for free because we can make anything out of their simple component atoms. We'll be able to make computers that are so powerful that they'll exceed the 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 power, the thinking power of of human beings. So we'll have strong artificial intelligence. You know uh, we ourselves, our bodies are made out of atoms and molecules. And so we, if we identify illness and disease with uh, atoms and molecules being in the wrong place, we'll be able to you know remedy things on a cell by cell basis. And, uh, you know, he didn't shrink from the ultimate conclusion of this, which is that this technology would abolish ageing and death and we'd all live forever. So a very, very powerful and seductive vision to some people who, who, who think that way. And, of course, such a powerful technology has got to have a downside. Many, you know, it's been a very fertile field for science fiction and so, you know, cartoon books and comics... You know, have this idea of uh, immensely powerful weapons based on nanotechnology. Michael Crichton, this, who died uh, last week, wasn't it? Uh, this, uh, the author of Jurassic Park, wrote a novel which, in retrospect, was not one of the greatest high spots of his career, but nonetheless, uh, th- th- this was a, a, a novel which talked about a nanotechnology experiment that went horribly wrong. Uh, Releasing a cloud of intelligent, self-replicating robots that uh, chase uh, that, that uh, started to, to to wreak havoc on the world until the hero, the plucky hero, managed to save the world. And the end of this, of course, is this wonderful idea of grey goo that grey goo uh, would would uh, you know devour the earth. That, that you'd have these little robots on the nanoscale scale and they'd uh, chomp around. Uh, basically eating up the entire ecosphere and converting converting it into more of themselves. So, again, a very powerful vision. So, where where, where do these ideas come from and what kind of plausibility can we we attach to them? To answer that, I want to step back a little bit and, and, and talk about technology. And I want to talk about a particular narrative in the history of technology that's perhaps less frequently talked about than some others. So, you know, many people, when when one thinks about the history of technology, one often thinks about it in terms of power. You know, you think about the Industrial Revolution as something that happened when water power was replaced by steam engines and, uh, uh, you know, that's a very important uh, uh, part of the story. But there's this other part of the story which comes about from increasing precision and increasing miniaturisation. So I live in Derbyshire and Derbyshire is an old mining area. And so in about 1550, if we'd gone out to the fields behind my house in the lead mining uh, areas of Derbyshire, this is the high technology that you would have seen in in, in the 16th century. So this is an illustration of a mine pump from this uh, wonderful um, medieval uh, mining manual by Agricola. And so you can see it's a big wheel, a couple of people inside the wheel, it's a treadmill, it's a rag and chain pump, in fact, so you can see these bits of rag being pulled up out of the, out of the mine. And the point I want to make about it is that, for, firstly, this is on a very large scale. This is made by uh, carpenters with relatively crude tools, you know, it's hacked out with abses, so it's very big and it's crude and it's rather imprecise. But on the other hand, it's rec- you know, we recognise what's going on in here, this is mechanical engineering of the type that we're familiar with it's you know it's about cogs and gears so uh, as the industrial revolution went on uh, as uh, and again this also happened in, in Derbyshire too as people started to make uh, factories, rights, and, 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 and such like. It's actually to say that the, these millwrights, the people who kind of made a living from making stuff like this, were the people who made those those machines in the early factories. And so people got better at making machines with more precision. And then by the mid-19th century, people were actually very, very good at making pre- precision objects. So people like Joseph Whitworth, who invented the interchangeable screw gauge in, in the mid-19th century, had really developed mechanical, uh, you know, making mechanical components to considerable precision, certainly to the pre- to precisions of 10, 10 microns or so. So this is an example of you know, where people had got to in terms of thinking about this famous mechanical calculator that was designed by Babbage. It was des- he didn't actually make it, but it was just on the cusp of what was possible with the engineering precision of the mid-19th century. So we've gone from this rather crude uh, um, precision to, 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 to this much finer level of precision. And this is hugely important. And the reason it was hugely important was that it made possible mass production, really. And it was only being able to make very precise parts that allowed you to make a proper factory. So, uh, and the, the classic story that people tell about this is the story of the Springfield Armoury in the, in the American Civil War. In, the, in, in, in previous times, if you were a gunsmith and you made a gun, what you'd do is you'd have a bunch of parts and you'd pull the part off the bench and you'd stick it into your into your... Uh, half-assembled gun and it wouldn't fit and you'd file it down until it fitted and you'd have to adjust every piece so it all fitted together. And so the achievement of the people who uh, improved uh, machine tool techniques was that if you could make a a piece with sufficient precision that it would just slot in without further adjustment, that's when you can have an assembly line because now you can have the the growing... uh, Gun going down the assembly line, and just pick up each component and slot it in. And so this was really what made that possible. And so it's really this, you know, increasing precision and miniaturisation has really made possible much of what we know about in the world today. And the kind con- of current state of the art is illustrated here. This is a, a, a MEMS device, a so-called uh, a, a, a microelectromechanical system, made by the same kind of technology that you use to make integrated circuits. So this is made out of silicon. And I suppose, uh, and so the, you've got the dust mite for scale there, so this is micron scale technology. So one argument going from left to right is that, you know, this is a, you know we, we've gone a huge way from these th- these very crude things cut out of bits of timber to those very finely detailed uh, uh, miniature systems. But on the other hand, I could say, well, actually, not very much has changed at all. Left-hand side's about cogs and gears, and the right hand side's about cogs and gears. We've just changed from having, you know, we've got the dog for scale to the dustmite for scale. And then you ask the question, well, okay, where are we going to go next? The seductive answer really is: well, we'll just shrink this down one stage further, and we'll have cogs and gears. that that, that, that are one stage further. And so this is really, I I, I submit, is the kind of seductive idea that that motivates um, Eric Drexler and this idea, this mechanical vision of nanotechnology. And so it's illustrated by these sorts of computer simulations. And again, you know, one has to emphasise these are not real things that anyone's made. This is, uh, you know, what you can simulate on a computer. And so, you know, these pictures, which to me look like, you know, the... The, the bastard offspring of a Haynes manual and a molecular modelling package, uh, defined this idea of uh, nanotechnology as, um, as uh, mechanical engineering shrunk. But this really is what the dominant media image is. This is uh, clearly reliable because it's from the Microsoft online encyclopedia. This is the kind of picture one sees all the time, illustrating... Uh, stories about nanotechnology in the press and th- this one here you see it's, a, it's, a, it's meant to be a little miniature s- uh, submarine going through the bloodstream cutting out uh, cholesterol deposits with these rotating knives and sucking them up through, the, uh, uh, th- through, through those kind of vacuum cleaners and when any practicing nanoscientist sees a picture like this, they—I they, mean—their their reaction ought to be utter laughter because absolutely things cannot be like this. This is not how it can be. But it's actually, you know, it's always interesting to say, well, why is this image so ridiculous? What's so stupid about it? And the reason why it's ridiculous is that physics—the way that physics works—is different when you're small to when you're big. So, uh, you know. When we do engineering, if you like, or you know, when, we, when we operate, when we make something on our human scale, you know, we have some intuitive notion about how physics works, which is what we rely on when we do you know, practical engineering work. And the, 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 the sort of approximations, the regimes that we're operating in, are really quite different when we get very small, and this is the key thing. Here's an example. Viscosity. What do I mean by viscosity? Well, here's a question. If you... If you, if you Try and swim. If you go swimming, uh, obviously you need to do work to go forward. The water resists your for- forward motion. And actually, it's an interesting question to say, you know, why does water, why, why is it difficult to swim? Why, what, what offers this resistance to motion? And fluid mechanics tells us that there are actually two possible reasons why, why, why water would resist our forward motion. One is that, it's, uh, that water's heavy material, it's, in, it's got inertia, we have to move it out of the way, it's got, because it's got mass, we have to move it out of the way, we have to give it momentum, we have to apply a force on it, it applies a force back, so that's inertia. The other reason, though, is this thing called viscosity, which we're familiar with, with viscous materials like honey. There's this kind of internal friction in fluids that stop planes of the fluid shearing apart apart from one another. And it turns out there's this number. If we want to say which is most important, we can calculate this number, which is called the Reynolds number, which tells us what's the ratio of those two factors. And uh, what you can do is you can uh, put the numbers in and you can convince yourself for our scale, for, for the swimming dolphins, it's actually inertia that's important. But if we look at this formula, it's got a size in. As we make things smaller, the effect of viscosity grows larger. So if we scale ourselves down by a factor of a million or a factor of a, 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 a thousand million to get towards the micro and nano scale, uh, that's equivalent. That, that looks like um, the same effect that you'd get from us on our scale going swimming in a vast vat of treacle. So, uh, if you ask, you know, what does water look like to a nanosubmarine? Nano it looks like the most viscous treacle you can imagine. And that completely changes everything about how you can make forward motion in it. Here's another thing. There's this thing called Brownian motion. You remember, uh, if, maybe many of you have done this experiment at school. If you look at... Um, any kind of small particles, these are actually paint particles suspended in water, micron-sized paint particles, you see them jiggling around all the time. That's because uh, uh, water's made out of molecules, and the molecules uh, have got heat energy, they're jiggling around all the time because they're hot. And so any particle in this bath is constantly bombarded by these fast-moving molecules that cause them to, to jiggle around. And, of course, if it's not... These are just particles, so these have no internal structure. If you're trying to make a machine on that scale, everything in that machine would be jiggled around too. So there'd be you know, constant flexing and, and jiggling around in, in the machine. Then we've got this thing about surface forces. Small things stick. If you get small things, these are little just a, a picture of some small, very small gold particles. What happens is they just stick to each other. And this is a, you know, a fundamental uh, quality of, of life at the nanoscale. In fact, I mean, the, 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 the more... This is one of these more... Uh, I mean, the proper way to think about it is that actually on our scale, it's not obvious. Why, doesn't, why don't things stick to each other on our scale? And the reason is that, you know, if you take two pieces of steel and put them together... The reason they don't stick is because on the, mi- on the microscopic and nanoscopic scale, they're rough, and so they're held apart. If you polish steel very well or if you polish glass very well and put them together, it does stick, because these van der Waals forces that are uh, universal at the nanoscale are, are, are always operative when the surfaces can get close enough together. So when you have small things, they'll stick. And of all the things in the world, the proteins are the most sticky. And this, you know, if you ever... Boil milk in a non in a pan that's where the non-stick coating is rubbed off, or you scramble eggs and, and don't put enough butter in. You know, you know the reason why those pans are so difficult to clean is because proteins are just the most sticky things that you can think about. So anytime you put any sort of nanoscale object into a uh, into the body, it will. Uh, uh, proteins will stick to it. And that's the, 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 the first part of the sequence of events that leads to the problems of things not being compatible. And then you've got this big question about how can you make not just one, but trillions of these things? So at the end of all this, like, you know, I'm kind of getting to the point where I might have taught ourselves out of this whole idea of nanotechnology at all. You know, the fact that physics is so different uh, makes it very difficult to see how we can carry on scaling down mechanical engineering down to, to these very small scales. But there's one really good argument, and to be fair, Drexler made it, why this, we can make nanoscale machines, and that's biology. If we look at biology, biological Biology is full of immensely sophisticated nanoscale machines. So this is a virus that's uh, actually a bacteriophage, so it's the kind of virus that infects not large organisms but bacteria. And what it's doing here is it's injecting its DNA into the cell, into the cell of an E. coli. And this is a a fairly uh, accurate depiction of what goes on based on some work from this Purdue group. So these are incredibly sophisticated machines, they work. And it's not just they work; they work really well. Here's another uh, biological nano machine. This is a molecular m- motor that, or pretty much everything biological, or, you know, from us and blue whales down to, to down to the smallest bacteria, we all have this machine and we rely on it. This is an energy; uh, it's an energy uh, conversion machine. It converts energy from a a gradient of acidity, a a hydrogen ion gradient, into the energetic molecule ATP. It stores the energy in this this fuel molecule ATP. And what's interesting about it is that when one uh, is able to study how it works, it's incredibly efficient. It's more than 95% efficient at converting energy. So we have this paradox then that we have biology. I, I've tried to argue that, 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 uh, that nanotechnology, as we, we, as we think about it in this uh, macroscopic way, can't possibly be right, but biology really is nanotechnology that works. And the reason for this, I think, is that the design principles are quite different from macroscale engineering. Uh, they exploit this different physics at the nanoscale, and uh, the, the, the final bottom line, to get us back to grey goo... It's kind of a profound misunderstanding to say, you know, the the, the view that that, that Drexler has, why why Drexler argued that grey goo was a problem was that uh, biology, his argument was biology, okay, biology is... It does work. It's got nanoscale machines. But, you know, it's made out of floppy, jelly-like materials. It's not been properly designed. It's just been thrown together by the random processes of uh, of evolution. So, you know, as soon as we get a a properly trained nanotechnologist on the job, you know, with a PhD from a respectable university, uh, working with sensible um, materials, then we'd be able to make machines that were much more effective than biology. And so they would out-compete biological machines in some sense. But what I argue very strongly is that this really completely misunderstands why biology does things the way it does. It does them the way it does because these are new design principles that are appropriate for this different physics in our scale world. Here's what I mean. This structure here, this is this bacteriophage here. This... um, it's a, quite a complex structure. The amazing thing about it is it's made out of a bunch of proteins and nucleic acids. If you just put those proteins and nucleic acids into a test tube and give them a shake, they spontaneously assemble into these complex machines. And so this is a incredible principle called self-assembly. It's really the combination of the fact that we have strong surface forces and things are being shaken around means that we can make things in this incredible way. The video is a very crude demonstration of this. The idea here is we have stickiness, kind of programmed stickiness. In that case, you've got the blue triangles uh, uh, only stick to the green triangles. These are little magnets floating on, a, on the surface of water. So the combination of this programmed stickiness and things constantly being shaken around allows non-trivial structures to arise spontaneously. And uh, we can do that. Uh, we have synthetic systems that can do that. The, the, these are perhaps some of the uh, the, the, the most common synthetic systems. Very, very simple. You you just have two different polymers that chemically don't like each other, so they try to separate, like oil and water would, but we attach them, they're chemically attached, so they can't get apart. And uh, the competition between this tendency that they want to get apart and the uh, the fact that they're tied together means they produce these really complex and intricate nanoscale structures. This thing here is called, uh, uh, this this is a so-called gyroid phase, uh, and it's... um, it, uh, it's, uh, so, so this is the kind of theoretical uh, view of it. And that's an electron micrograph uh, uh, of, of this very, very complex phase. And it's, uh, I, it's, it's Paul Wraithby's in the back. I said it's, uh, it's the IA3D phase. That's, in fact, the only space group I know. The uh, sorts of things that in Sheffield we, we, we do to... to, to, to um, Uh, uh, to to exploit this principle. This shows you some of the ways in which you can exploit these principles uh, in synthetic materials. Again, from block copolymers, we can make these block copolymers form little bags. So again, we just take these molecules, give them a shake, and these competing forces of uh, Brownian motion uh, uh, letting them try out lots of different configurations, and the, the fact that Different parts of the molecule want to stick to different parts of each other, make them form these remarkable sacks. Here's again a micrograph showing this, this bag with this wall thickness of about 2.4 nanometers. Another principle comes about when we ask how, 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 how can we get mechanical work done at the nanoscale? How can we make machines that do things? Our muscles are collective uh, assemblies of just this sort of thing. And, This video here shows you a a, a particular motor protein, not the one that's used in our muscles, but something like it. And what you can see here, this is a molecule that moves along a track. And this is really how our muscles work. Our muscles are full of little tracks and and molecules that just uh, move along. And I just want to, What I want to stress about this is that what's going on here is we've got a confirmation of the fact that the molecules aren't very stiff, so it's quite different from macroscopic engineering where we expect everything to be stiff. These molecules are floppy and they're constantly being shaken around by Brownian motion. And by coupling that kind of... Uh, the, the conformational transitions, exploiting that lack of rigidity with uh, uh, cyclic chemical changes, molecules coming in, binding to them, uh, some chemistry happening, them being split up and then them being m- 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 uh, sp- spat out. It's that, that, it's that, that combination of, uh, uh, of this lack of stiffness and Brownian motion that really allows us to, make, to do mechanical work on the nanoscale. Again, a completely different way of uh, thinking about making motors. And here's the question, you know, another piece of nice scaling physics, really. Why is it that, you know, our, our muscles aren't full of uh, little petrol engines? Why isn't, why don't we have heat engines? You know, everything in macroscopic engineering, all our kind of energy conversion devices, uh, well, all the ones that convert chemical energy to mechanical energy are all heat engines. The so things like steam engines, diesel engines, petrol engines. And what we know about heat engines is the way they work is this: they they have um, You need something hot and you need something cold. And you take energy from the hot reservoir to the cold reservoir and you sneak a bit, you convert a bit of that energy out into useful work. So here's my cartoon of a a petrol engine. You've got fuel in there, it burns, you get some heat and then you you exploit that by moving the piston up in response to the increased pressure in there. What's going to happen to that when we make it small? Well, we know that um, as we make things smaller, they are less able to keep heat in. So if you have a pint mug of tea, it stays hot for some time. If you have a tiny little delicate espresso of coffee, it goes cold quite quickly. The time it takes for, for heat to leave scales as the size squared, in fact. So as we make an engine smaller, we'd have to run it faster and faster and faster in order to be able to get the mechanical work out before the heat had dissipated away. And of course, there's some limit to that. At some point, you'll be trying to operate this thing so fast that the piston just can't move fast enough. It, it, it'll just uh, it'll just vibrate backwards and forwards without getting energy out at all. So, heat engines don't scale properly down to the nanoscale, and that's why you know in biology there are no heat engines. All there are are engines that are driven that operate at constant temperature. Here's our. Uh, th- this is a, a very simple example of how we tried, again in, 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 in my lab in Sheffield, to, 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 to try and um, copy this principle, if you like. Here's a very, very simple responsive polymer molecule. We, we, we made a polymer that had a middle block that could be charged and uncharged. So uh, it's actually a polyacid. So those of you who remember any chemistry, weak acids have this characteristic, that if you put them in, in, in the presence of lots of hydrogen ions, they're not charged. In that case, this will be a hydrophobic polymer that will tend to shrink in water. If we make it's in a basic environment, all the hydrogen ions will leave the acidic groups. It'll now become a charged polymer, which is much more hydrophilic. It's much more happy to be surrounded by water, and at that point it'll expand. And so we have a, we, we've got a molecule that we can change its shape by going from acid to base. Now, we combine that with another piece of chemistry. Uh, uh, it's a very beautiful piece of chemistry that I haven't got time to talk about, but it, it, there's a whole class of chemical reactions that spontaneously oscillate. So we've got a, a, a reaction that we put in fuel steadily and it, uh, and it spontaneously oscillates the, the, the acidity. So, by combining these two, we could get a system that that that, uh, that responds in, that, that converts this chemical energy to mechanical energy it 's a very busy video here, but i 'll just try and explain everything that 's going on in it the top left you 've got a macroscopic lump of material uh, the top the bottom left this is the pH changing, so the acidity is spontaneously changing with time so uh if we look at what the, the, the material's doing, the material's expanding and contracting. And that expansion and contraction that you see at the macroscopic scale directly reflects what the molecules are doing. We did this experiment in a synchrotron, so uh, we, by firing a very intense beam of X-rays at it, we're able to study the size of these molecules, the ring that you see on the top right. That's the synchrotron data, uh, and the size of that ring is inversely uh, proportional to the size of the molecules. So the cartoon at the bottom right Tells you what we're able to deduce to is going on. We're coupling this chemical, cyclic chemical change, to this change in shape of the molecules. And in that way, we've got something that looks a bit like a synthetic muscle. So uh, I guess it, uh, it's clear what I'm driving at now. Uh, the nanotechnology, nature is nanotechnology that works. Uh, if we're going to get uh, uh, our own synthetic nanotechnology to work we need to copy nature's lessons and I guess there's two ways of doing this we can either kind of, uh, this, this beautiful word biocleptic which I pinched off Ned Seaman from New York University uh, you can imagine just stealing wholesale bits of biology taking the, 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 the machines that biology uses them and reassembling them in a synthetic context or we can try and study these design principles as biological nanotechnology and try and, you know, do. Try and think through why biology why does biology do engineering on the nanoscale the way it does and try and use those design principles in our own kinds of uh, systems I Want to finish by talking about the areas that, that, that nanotechnology is going to be important for and i think uh, three things i think most people would agree are, are, are important in the way that the world is and the way it's going to develop energy information and medicine Here's uh, 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 just a, a context. Actually, this slide is called "Not Enough" because there's a journalist called Bill McKibben who wrote a very good book—a a wrong but good book—called "Enough." Bill McKibben is a kind of cons- uh, 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 an American journalist, uh, somewhat uh, um, not at all happy by. Uh, Many developments in modern technology. And this book, Enough, really argues we have enough technology. We really shouldn't have, we should, we should stop pursuing these advanced and potentially uh, worrying technologies because we don't need them, because we have enough technology that we can all you know, live in comfort. We don't need any more gadgets or gizmos. And I think this is a wrong argument, and this is the reason why, why it's wrong. So uh, we know that Te- humanity at the moment, the number of people that, uh, that, that live in the world at the moment, we depend existentially on technology uh, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, energy is the most obvious one. So w- we've got to the state we're in now with the population that the world now has through the application of technology. But we know that the technology that we've got isn't sustainable, it's, uh, and particularly in areas like energy uh, and the environment, uh, we, we we know that we can't go on with the technology that we've got. So in a sense, we have no choice. It's not a, we we haven't got the luxury of saying we have enough technology because we depend on the technology we've got, and we know that that technology isn't sustainable. Uh, so energy is the the most obvious one of these things. Uh, um, the, the the demand for energy is is constantly increasing, and this is going to carry on as the world's population both Uh, increases and then perhaps stabilises in the middle of the century. Uh, As people get richer, as countries like China and India become much richer, uh, the, the, the demands will inexorably increase. So there's this very large demand for energy and on the other hand, we know that uh, the, the, the energy we rely on at the moment, fossil fuel energy, is unsustainable, both from the fact that, that at least the, the, the easily accessible parts of it will be running out, and also because of its effect on the climate. There is actually... Uh, the one type of renewable energy that you can talk about is, is, is sunshine. Uh, here's, uh, you know, really a, a great deal of energy lands on the Earth for, in the form of sunshine, that little square there represents the amount of the United States, the area of the United States you'd need to cover with solar cells to meet the entire energy needs of the United States from solar energy. And, uh, um, of course, um, yeah, it's hard luck on the people who live in western Kansas. <laughs> the point, of course, is not that you'd put it all in one place, but uh, although it, you know it's a big area, it, it, it is actually manageable. So the question comes, well, why don't, you know, why don't we all just... Uh, have huge amounts of solar cells to, uh, to 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 deliver all the energy we need. And the answer to that is this: uh, solar cells are great. Um, so you know the kinds of solar cells you can get from if you go down to 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 B&Q, you can buy yourself a nice solar cell. It's really quite efficient. It's very long lasting, but. It's too expensive, and you can't scale. You, the area that's being produced is just not enough. And I showed you that very large area of, of Kansas that you'd need to, to cover to get a, uh, to, 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 to make a big dent on the total energy needs. And the total output, if you if you kind of calculate how many solar cells are made in the world and convert that into square into acres or square kilometers, I think it's about a couple of square kilometers a year is made. So it's really no... It's about two orders of magnitude less than is needed to make a serious dent on the world's energy needs. And the reason for that is this. They're made out of silicon. They're made out of very pure silicon that's made by high-energy batch processes that that it's very difficult to scale. But we do know, I mean, we have got processes that produce quite complicated materials on sheets in very large areas. You know, an an interesting calculation is to ask yourself, you know, what's the total area of daily mail that's produced every day? Uh, And, you know, these are big numbers. These processes like printing, producing plastic bags, it's a film line that, that would make the sorts of plastic that you'd use for packaging. And actually people can put quite complicated multilayers onto those, those systems. So if we could make, uh, if we could go to these kind of printing roll-to-roll processes rather than these batch processes, you know, painstakingly purifying single crystals one at a time, that would have a huge potential. And nanotechnology, and, uh, nano-inspired nanotechnology, provides us with some ideas. Uh, um, we, um, th- th- there's some new ideas coming along that uh, really exploit the way that Plant, they take ideas in the way that plants convert chemical, uh, solar energy into chemical energy, and uh, in this way, maybe that's going to be compatible with uh, this kind of cheap, large area of processing. Final thing I want to just finish with, really, is to talk about drugs and drug delivery. Uh, if you ask the, again, if you ask the question, you, you, you have something wrong with you, you take a drug, you, you, know, you swallow an aspirin or whatever, and you ask the question how, much, how how many of those molecules actually go to where they 're needed? They go to the, 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 the receptors that, uh, that they need to act on it 's actually a very, very difficult question to answer. There are a few cases in which people have been able to quantify that mostly for, for um, drugs based on antibodies and the answer is you know It's less than one hundredth of a percent typically of those molecules actually get where they where they need it. Now this doesn't matter at all for aspirin or paracetamol or whatever, but it matters a great deal for drugs of the kind that people use, say for as chemotherapy agents for cancer, because those drugs are terribly toxic, I mean the, the basis of chemotherapy is that you have a drug that's a very toxic material and you hope it's slightly more toxic for the tumour than it is for the rest of you, but you know the very serious side effects that people suffer from with chemotherapy make you realise that you know it, it's, it, this is really a, rather unsatisfactory so uh, the, what you'd need to do is wrap these drugs up in some kind of uh, in some kind of enclosure. You might use the sorts of molecular bags that I showed you earlier. You'd like to kind of uh, get them to targeted so that they went to the tumor and they, they they didn't go anywhere else. So you'd need to to enclose them. You'd need to target them. And there are a few examples of these. More and more examples of these now coming into clinical use. So, so uh, there's probably. A handful that you could name that are already in the clinic, but uh, uh, people who are in the business of regulating drugs tell me that there, you know, scores, at least scores of these things, slowly working their way through the very long process of uh, testing and uh, and regulation. And I suppose that all this, you know, in some ways, this gets us back to, 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 to our nanobot, actually, because you know, saying I'm going to get a molecule, I'm going to wrap it up in a vessel, and I'm going to steer it somewhere, and then I'm going to deliver it—it kind of is a bit like a nanobot. But of course, this now emphasises it's not going to look like this popular vision. It's not going to look much more like. You know, a piece of biology, an E. coli, a bacteria, in some sense. You know, it's a biological nanobot that operates on these entirely different principles and can uh, steer its way and it can propel itself and it can steer and it can do all kinds of neat things. So, if you like, that is the kind of thing that we're we're, we're going for. I just want to finish with, to answer this question... We've got some idea about how we can wrap molecules up. We've got some idea about how we can target them. We haven't got much idea about how we could propel them, much less steer them. And I just wanted to finish with an experiment again from from Sheffield, which I like a lot, which just gives us a clue about how you can steer, propel something. And this really is an idea from my colleague, Ramin Golastanian, who's a theoretical physicist at Sheffield. And he had this great idea for propelling something. He said, supposing I take a particle... And I coat one half of it with a catalyst. And I've I've got a chemical reaction. And all the chemical reaction needs to do is got to be a chemical reaction that has more products than it has reactants. So you start out like that. So this is my kind of cartoon physicist version of chemistry. You've got things that are stuck together and the catalyst splits, splits them apart. Well, what happens then is that we get more molecules on one side than the other. Now again, going back to Brownian motion, you remember the reason why we're taught that particles constantly jiggle around because they're constantly being bombarded by the molecules around them and they jiggle all over the place but they don't go anywhere because on average they're always bombarded as many times on the left as they are on the right. In this case we've broken the symmetry. This chemical reaction breaks the symmetry so there are always more products on the right-hand side than the left. And that actually, another way of thinking about it, that makes an osmotic pressure gradient. It's a a particle that makes its own osmotic pressure gradient and it just surfs along on the back of that. So we realised... So so a a very gifted postdoc in my group, John Howes, executed that. He made micron-sized polystyrene spheres, half-coated them with platinum, and used this reaction, hydrogen peroxide, familiar to everybody who bleaches their hair, splits that into, into water and oxygen. And here's the results. This, uh, we've got three controls here. Top left, top right and bottom left are all controls. Top left is just an ordinary particle. Top right is the ordinary particle in hydrogen peroxide. Bottom left is uh, the p- particle with a catalyst but no fuel. So those all should be just doing Brownian motion. Bottom right is the car- particle that has the catalyst and the fuel. And if I just get the video to run again, you'll see that these three just do beautiful classical Brownian motion and that one really zooms along and, and it goes somewhere. And that's just the traces just to show you that, that this really does work and it's a, uh, it, it's a, a way of you know, exploiting this different physics and getting a, a, an entirely new mechanism for propelling things. So uh, I, I'm coming to the end really. The future of nanotechnology, what I hope I've convinced you is that this idea, you know, it's... The nano world, physics of the nano world is very different from the physics that we're used to. And so the kind of intuitions we have from mechanical engineering aren't reliable. And so this idea of shrinking down mechanical engineering won't happen. And of course, that means that, uh, that as well, the money economy, of course, is collapsing via (laughs) other mechanisms. but, uh, you know, so, uh, you know this, this vision of nanotechnology that Drexler has of it being you know, utterly transformative, I think, needs to be revisited. But on the other hand, there are some very interesting consequences from this. Uh, it is a, I think we can sensibly hope for this as a way of getting towards a, a, you know, a sustainable energy economy. Very important as, uh, implications to medicine. I haven't talked about um, information at all, but important implications there. So my final words I suppose is that I think nanotechnology, it should be soft, wet and flexible. More like biology than engineering and so this really is the subject of my book which I can't, remember, can't, can't uh, resist mentioning at this stage. So I'll f- finish by thanking, I, I, I'm, I'm very grateful to my collaborators in, in, um, in Sheffield and particularly um, I am a physicist. I've had to learn lots of chemistry. I've had a great collaborator in the chemistry department, Tony Ryan and uh, various people have given us money despite the slightly off-the-wall uh, ideas that uh, we've uh, floated to our funding bodies. so I'm grateful to them for that and thanks very much for listening.